Hi, welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> to be quiet and keep the kids quiet, since he was getting anxiety and he didn't want to kill children. Gertrude's daughter even got to join in on what they considered fun. Tell us about the giant turtle. Alan never showed up, nor was he ever heard from again beyond that point. Welcome to Macabre Emporium. This is episode 15. And if this is your first episode, because you're one of those weirdos that don't like to start from the beginning, welcome. Did you do anything fun this week? Mm, yeah, I went to work, as usual. Yeah, I said fun. <laughs> it can be at times. My job is very fun. Kind of proves that prestige levels don't mean shit on Call of Duty. That's about it, really, but... I don't know what that means. <laughs> but okay. Like, there's a level cap. And then once you hit that level cap, you get a prestige level. It's kind of like Paragon levels in Diablo. Okay. Basically, they just call them prestige levels. I've only like level 24, I think, right now. And I'm still beating the piss out of prestige levels and console players for the most part. Maybe they're just really bad players. Could be, or just because my hardware is better than most consoles. Could be why. Maybe. Because you know, one company, uh, one of their slogans is, is frames win games, for the most part, so. Oh. Frames per second, basically. Getting a little braggy there, huh? No, nah, not too much. Not... <laughs> oh, I mean, now, yeah, I still suck at it, but, you know, when you're in the pregame lobby talking shit, and then, like, a lower level has a higher kill-death ratio, then you need to shut the fuck up. Yeah. You know, one of the things that mostly irritates me when playing online is people that bitch every time that they die. Well, I mean, I get it. Oh, I mean, there's what I do, and then there's people that do it every time. Oh. Like, when you hear me say, oh, that's bullshit, it's basically because, yeah, it was a truly bullshit kill. You do that a lot, though. Yeah, but a lot of them are complete bullshit because they do what's called dolphin diving, which is a real bitch move where they use a rocket launcher. Instead of actually using a skill of actually shooting, they just kind of eh, throw a grenade in my direction oh but. i don't know sometimes when you're over here on your computer playing something mm -hmm. literally sounds like you have Tourette's. <laughs> yeah i can see that but it's quite funny sometimes i i don't know if you have ever noticed like how often i sit back here laughing at the shit you say and how absolutely, mad you get sometimes absolutely never do oh my god I'll sit back there laughing my ass Probably off. Probably one of the last times is when I was playing on the campaign mode when I got tossed out of a helicopter and was hanging upside down and trying to use inverted controls. When I was like, this is <laughs> absolutely fucking bullshit. I don't know. I don't know. It happens often. Yeah. Yeah. But the, now you see why I told you I can't stop playing online games for a while. Yeah. Anything else fun? Mm, not really, other than looking at PC parts, but that's whatever. Again. We're talking fun. It's fun for you. That would not be fun you for me. You didn't specify. <laughs> Let's see. I finally got the heater in my car fixed. This past week, I've been getting a ride with my BFF for life, D. Which we still one of these days need to get around here. She was asking, actually, maybe yeah. a week ago when she was going to be able to come on here. No, that's going to be interesting to try and do that with only two microphones. You know that bitch is loud enough for the both microphones. Uh, yeah. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> we'll have to have one of them muted the whole time. Yeah. We'll just pass around the microphone. Maybe. Um, But yeah, got the heat in my car fixed, so now I can drive myself to work so I don't have to freeze. What else? Watched the second episode of The Last of Us? Yes. That was pretty good. And now one meme I keep seeing recently in the last week makes more sense. Now, because in the second episode, the clickers are introduced, but I've not played the game yet, and I've been called a fake gamer because of this until... I'm sure you can guess who. A fake gamer? Yes. Some friend of the show continuously calls me a fake gamer now just because I've never seen The Last of Us, <laughs> and I shut them down pretty quick when I sent them a picture of Gordon Freeman from the first Half-Life game in 1998 and asked them who they were, and they didn't know who they was. So you're saying Noodle got owned? Mm, yep. <laughs> not Noodle? No, it was, actually. Ah. Huh. <laughs> That's funny. What are you talking about this week? Actually, one more thing about, you know, things that were fun. Actually, researching this topic of history was actually kind of fun because it seems kind of boring, but I found it quite interesting, which is about sliced bread and when it was banned during World War II. Oh. 
Well, your O sounds there like, that's interesting. Wink, wink. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. But it kind of makes me think of back, what was it, in our episode zero, technically, when it's talk, the intro of us. Yeah. When I mentioned that meme about at the age of 35 where men have to make the choice of being involved in a deep dive in World War II history or smoking meats, well, I kind of, now if you think about it, I'm going both ways now, but I'm not going into the same way as the um, most people would and study the battles and <clears throat> the weaponry and things like that. Mine's more, mine's more on the home front of things during World War II, like this ban on sliced bread I'm going to talk about. I know it sounds kind of stupid, but it's kind of interesting. And I'm also going to bring about the history of the f- first sliced bread. Oh, which you are older than. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not that much farther behind. Don't forget that part. You always forget about that part, and I will always remind you. Anyway, so what is it you have this week? I am going to be... Well, okay, so it's a little bit... Okay, a lot of bit true crime. Okay. A little bit cult. A little bit cult, cult, cult-ish almost? Little, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and in this case, you cannot say, you're in a cult, call your dad. Because this, <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, it's a guy by the name of Marcus Wesson in okay. Fresno, California. I almost said Frisco. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's inside of a Hardy's <clears throat> breakfast sandwich there. I, I do not believe so. Even though I think... No, you said Fresno, never mind. Fresno. I was going to say, well, Frisco is a short term for that. No, but I was thinking San Francisco. But anyhow. Oh, no. Fresno. <laughs> Anyways, are you ready to hear about a really fucked up individual? Sure. I mean, that is why we named their podcast Macabre Emporium. True. So, with that said, let's get started here. All right. Marcus Wesson was born on August 27, 1964, in Kansas. He was the eldest son of parents, Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. Father Benjamin was a jobless alcoholic who was sexually depraved. He would flirt with his own children. He even once offered a young boy, a family friend... Uh, $50 to have him perform oral on himself. Not himself, but... Eventually, Benjamin ran away from his home and his family life with another young male family family member and moved to San Jose, California. But he wound up returning 10 years later. Mother, Carrie, was very religious. She was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. She was also one for punishment. She would hit her children with extension cords if they refused to attend Bible Bible study sessions daily. Daily? Daily. Well, that's kind of how most of these kind of cults, people, types, whatever you want to call them, usually go. I think Ed Gein's parents, well, not parents, his mother, I believe, was the same way as well. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I do remember she was very religious. That's crazy. The whole religion thing is crazy to me, but when you're that, like, a fanatic, Mm -hmm. nah. So Marcus Wesson, he will be our main person in this. Okay. Uh, He loved to play the part of preacher and would use scripture and would bend it to meet his own perverse needs, basically. Okay. As he aged, he wound up quitting school and joining the military where he served as an army medic. He was honorably discharged from the Vietnam War, and he started to date a woman named Rosemary Solario. When the pair first met, Rosemary was already married, therefore she wound up ending the marriage that she was currently in and took her kids to move in with Marcus. Rosemary would give birth to their first shared child, a son, in 1971. But even through this, Marcus was building a strange bond with Rosemary's daughter, Elizabeth. She would later on state that she heard Marcus tell her that God chose her to be his bride. Sure, okay. Yeah. I'm sure he fucking said that, you fucking weirdo. Eight-year-old Elizabeth, she mm. was only eight, would marry Marcus, who was 27 at the time, in a private wedding ceremony. Where's Boots when you need him? <laughs> boots. If you want, not sure who Boots is, he's uh, the code name for one of the local um, 
pedophile hunter groups, I guess you could sell them lack of a better term, called yeah. uh, Bikers Against Predators. Yeah. I'm sure other area groups are in your area that do the same thing, but he goes out on Facebook Live and exposes people like Marcus here. Yes, sir. Four years after their wedding, Marcus would start sexually abusing her when she turned 12. But that didn't stop her from legally marrying him when she was 15 years old. Like, fully consenting to marrying this dude. Four months after their legal marriage, Marcus, who was 34 at this point, welcomed his first child with Elizabeth. There would be 10 more children birthed by Elizabeth. There would be five boys, four girls, and one baby that died in infancy. And all of them were fathered by Marcus. Rosemary was addicted to drugs, and because of this, she could no longer care for the seven children she had from her previous marriage. So she left Marcus and left her children at home with him. This left Marcus with 16 children in his care. 16 children in how long? Care. Yeah, but 16 children in how long of a time period? Um, Seven of the children that got left at the home were mm-hmm. Rosemary's children from her oh, prior marriage. Oh, okay, I was like... And then the other nine were like, his his daughter wife, basically, mm-hmm. and their nine children. Like his father, Benjamin, Marcus Wesson could not hold a stable job and was okay with just living off of the system, like so many people are. The older children worked and paid Marcus their entire paychecks. For food, the children were forced to search through trash bins. However, it never failed that when Marcus wanted a greasy-ass burger, mm-hmm. he always had money to go get himself food. Right. Kind of like our parents, you know, when their grandchildren from us would be like, oh, we would never go to McDonald's. But yeah, I was your mom then. I'm a grandma now. I have money for that. <laughs> right. Elizabeth would suffer severe abuse from Marcus. He refused to let her become involved in the upbringing of their shared nine alive children. And the children that Elizabeth's mother, Rosemary, had left behind. Okay. So she fell back and just kind of became another child in the house. Marcus did not allow the children to go to public school, so he made Elizabeth teach them at home. She used a handwritten Bible that really honed in on the vampiric nature of Jesus Christ. Marcus also told his children to call him either Lord or Master and let them know that he was God. He also told them that Armageddon was coming soon and that he would eventually marry every girl in the household. What the fuck? Uh-huh. Marcus and his fucked up logic was worried that his sons and daughters would start having sexual feelings towards one another. So he kept them apart. For numerous months, he'd confine the girls to a houseboat that they had once lived in. And the boys would stay in a, like, very thickly wooded area inside a cabin. Marcus would keep the girls around for his benefit since they could perform any and all requests made by him, from scratching his armpits to cleaning his nasty, gnarly, thick fucking dreadlocks. They're disgusting. Oh, I'm sure. And uh, washing his belly hair for him. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Um, They basically became his personal slaves. That's what it sounds like. Marcus went on to marry two of his own daughters and three of his nieces in private wedding ceremonies when they were only eight or nine years old. He was also sexually abusing them. He started to abuse them by fondling their breasts and genitals, then moved on to teaching them how to perform oral sex on him. Then, as the final act, he would have intercourse with them. What? Yeah. But but let's be real. That's what you call rape. Oh, yeah. Um... He called, I'm, okay, I'm just going to call it rape, because that's what it was. Right. So each act of rape, afterwards, he would call loving. No. That was them loving. Yes. Um, after he finished, he would tell the girls that that was what um, he considered the fatherly way to show love was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and even though this is in a video format and everyone's just like, yeah, yeah. It's like... his. It, it, I know you can't see him, but his eyeballs were the size of no. little plates. Maybe not the size of little plates, but more of an annoyance. It's like, this is not cultish behavior. This it was is, a very what the fuck. Oh, that's coming. Yeah, I was like, you said something about cult. I'm like, where is that coming? It's, because it's coming. The ones that I've listened about, you know, like... 
wasn't really like a whole lot like this. I uh-huh. mean, some of them kind of were, but that's why I said this is a lot of true crime and a little cult. True. Um, there are cultish behaviors, behaviors, okay. and things. You'll get it. All right. Anyways, as a result of the incestuous relationships that he forced them into, five of his daughters would become pregnant. <laughs> that little head whip, like, the fuck? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Marcus threatened them by saying if they ever disclosed who the father of their children was, that he would hurt them. Them being the girls and not the children. Right. Because the children, you know, they can they, they can, can serve their regr- purpose. They can be groomed into my yep. fucked up plans. Yep, they can serve their purpose when they're old enough, but I just have to let you live long enough to, yep. you know, birth them. So in total, he would come to impregnate seven of his daughters five of which were his wives. Child brides, basically. He fathered 18 children by seven different females. Again, five of those were his child brides. And he'd recite biblical verses to defend them when need be. Um, He loved to show, like, favoritism. Yeah. But it was never towards just one of them. Like, each day his favorite changed. Because he liked the sibling rivalry between them. And he liked having females fight over him, even though it was his kids. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, He would go on to state that God wanted him to have more than one wife before having the girls fight for his affection and private time with him. Okay, here's the little little culty stuff. Okay. Marcus was intrigued by David Koresh, you know, the leader of the cult. Yeah, the branch of Indians from Waco, Waco, Texas. And how he had multiple wives. Yeah. The entire family would sit around the TV and watch all of the shit going down, especially like the siege part of Waco. Right. Um, in 93. Do you ever think that David Crush was starting to sing We Didn't Start the Fire during that? We, oh. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah. So when the siege happened, there were 80 of Koresh's followers that died. Mm-hmm. Marcus told his family, this is how the world is attacking God's people. This man is just like me. He was making children for the Lord. That's what we should be doing, is making children for the Lord. No, the fuck he wasn't. He was one, a (laughs) harboring illegal weapons for that. And that's what got him caught for him and his fucking child brides. Because if I remember correctly, it was a case of fucking grenades got cracked open. And like someone's like, um, hey, can somebody come look at this? Something's not right here, mister. You know, yeah. Waco siege kind of falls into that big six category for the most part, so right? We're so not we're not getting, getting into, into it, but it was part of my research. Yep. So they saw themselves as good sur- surrogates for Elizabeth, since she could no longer bear children. After this, he turned his family into a little cult. They were only allowed to wear black skirts, either gray or black shirts, and black shoes. They could not wear anything else. So black shirts, skirts, and shoes. Yes. So they were going to a funeral 24-7. Word. Uh, he described himself as Jesus Christ and declared that the police officers, police officers anywhere, were Satan. As if they were one one giant being, I guess. Right. Um, well, and they're kind of being viewed as that way now in the last couple of years recently. But Yeah. Marcus taught his family to prepare for death in the case that anyone ever tried to break their family apart. He told his niece Rosa and his daughter Sabrina that they were strong soldiers who will kill any family member that tries to betray him. Did, like, anybody, like, raise suspicions about this? There were... Or you haven't got to that part yet. I, I didn't really add it in here. But yeah, there were a lot of neighbors that were like, you know... Once the final act happened towards the end okay. of this, they were like, I never expected it out of this family, blah, 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 blah. Nobody really seemed to have many concerns other than, like, they didn't see him outside often, that kind of thing. Okay, so that's Not, how he's able to keep it under wraps for so long. Probably. Because I was, like, thinking, if they're out and about or whatever, it's like, why is, like, nobody raising suspicion about any of this shit? But anyhow. Yeah. Marcus also had a severe fascination with vampires. <laughs> he like, gave... suddenly we have been, like, this week and last week. Uh, yeah. 
He gave himself his daughter's and his niece's vampire names. The name he gave himself was... Lestat. Please tell me it was Lestat. No. Okay. <laughs> that was going to be really hard for me to say. Because you know every angsty teen boy at one point besides myself had the Lestat phase. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. But this name, I'm going to try and say it. Okay. I'm going to say it, and you are going to tell me what names you get out of this one name. Okay? Okay. Jiva Marcus Aspire. Say that one more time. Jiva Marcus Aspire. Well, you got give Marcus Aspire. <laughs> no. Well, there is Marcus and Aspire in there clearly, but Jeevas, I've never. It is a mixture of Jesus, Marcus, and Vampire. Okay. Do you do you get it? Yeah. <laughs> do you want to see how it's spelled out so you can actually see? Because you can make all of those. Give Jesus a vampire. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's why I'm 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 hearing. Okay. Let's see. Hold on, people of the the pod listening. Where is it at? Right here. You can make Jesus, Marcus, and vampire out of all those letters. Do you get it now? Yeah, I get it now. Okay. It's fucking stupid. Yeah. Moving on from that (laughs) stupid shit. Yeah, I mean, we can go on another stupid name rant here if you really wanted to. Yeah, I know. That's right. That plagues people our age when naming their kids. Giving them unique spellings and common names like Jason, J-A-C-E-N. Oh, that's... Braxton or anything that ends with the E-N, like, sound, you know, like the Braxtons and shit like that. But anyhow. Okay. There was a time when Ruby Sanchez, who was one of Marcus's nieces was just a teen and had teenage tendencies such as dating, right? Right. Marcus had caught her flirting with a boy and he became so enraged that he beat the shit out of her. So even after Marcus beating the shit out of her, neighbor still didn't say anything? Or this was, well, no, because of my question earlier, earlier, they wouldn't even know that happened. No. So, never mind. Um, Ruby attempted to run away numerous times, but always returned. Why she came back, I don't know. Probably because she didn't have anywhere else to go. I would have slept on the street before I went back to that shit. Right. When Ruby was 22, she chose to leave home for good. Her sister, Sofino, went with her. And after they left, they came to terms with the fact that the life that they had been, um, subjected to Mm -hmm. was pretty abnormal. They were extremely worried about the young siblings and the two small children that they left behind. So they had apparently had children with Marcus as well. Right. Many of Marcus's relatives, especially Ruby and Sofina, were disgusted by him and chose to stand up once and for all. On March 12th in 1994, relatives gathered together to call him out and demand the children be released from his home. They called the police and told them they needed to come to 761 West Hammond Avenue to help settle a custody matter that had turned violent. Ruby and Sofina were surrounded by a large group of supporters demanding the return of their small children. Unfortunately, the home's occupant was unwilling to hand them over. The sisters were called whores and bitches. Sabrina even pointed to her father Marcus and told Ruby, bend down to your lord, before running back inside the house with the other kids. The police arrived, and in the middle of the conflict stood Marcus Wesson, a 300-pound African-American man with, I, I told you, gnarly, long, thick gray dreadlocks that literally hung to his knees. Each side screamed at the other and hurled insults while Marcus stood there calmly in the doorway. He refused to allow officers entry into the home without a warrant. Both sides of the fight eventually came to blows and Marcus told the police that he wished to go inside because he knew that this was, this was it for him. Yeah. He wanted to go inside and give his children a proper goodbye. He disappeared into the house and closed the door behind him. Ruby and Sofina were shouting to the police that Marcus was going to hurt the kids. One of Marcus's sons told the police that his father owned a 22 caliber pistol. And with this knowledge laid at their feet, the Fresno police called in for a SWAT team. During the standoff, there were several witnesses that reported hearing gunshots. But that did nothing as the police didn't move to try to stop the massacre that began. The police would deny hearing gunshots, and they were backed up by the chief of police. 
What the fuck? Yep. Marcus would reemerge from the house an hour and 20 minutes later with his clothing stained in blood. Around 9 p.m., the officers then chose to actually do something, and they rushed inside the house yelling for the children and letting them know that it was safe to come out. While they were doing that, Marcus was outside being arrested. Officer Eloy Escarino, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but Eloy Escarino was shocked and disgusted by what he saw inside the house. In the living room, he found 10 mahogany caskets stacked up alongside the living room wall. Remember, Marcus was saying, Marcus had, had told them basically, like, you're in it to kill. Basically, yeah. somebody comes in and tries to disrupt our family, kill them. And in that, they had also made basically like a suicide pact. Yeah. That if one goes, they all go. I mean, because why else would you need 10 fucking caskets? Yeah, I mean, I don't understand why they want to deny the, deny the shots, but it's... I don't know. Oh, we live in California. You hear gunshots all the time. No. This There's is a different. difference between hearing gunshots <laughs> from... 100 feet away from a couple hundred feet away. Yeah. It's, I mean, you hear the people not too far from us on the weekends. Yeah. You know. I wish we didn't. Well, the ones I'm talking about are farther away when, you know, not near us being responsible. I'm hoping that they are and not unlike some of the people that are closer to us. Yeah. And I'm not talking about like the dipshits on New Year's Eve. Right. When he went down the hall towards the back of the house, while the other officers checked the rest of the rooms, Eloy opened a closed door and entered. The room was so dark, he had to use his flashlight in one hand while he held his gun in the other, just in case there was somebody, you know, in there. As he looked around the room with his dim flashlight, he saw what he called an indistinct mass on the floor. He felt around the walls until he found a light switch and flipped it, and the lights came on. What he saw when the lights came on was extremely reminiscent of a horror movie. There was a literal pile of bodies in the middle of the floor. Mm. Babies, kids, young women, each of the victims shot in the eye and then stacked from youngest to oldest. The fuck? Sabrina was on top of the pile with the 22 caliber tucked under her arm. There were nine bodies in total laying there. Blood pooled under the bodies, which were still warm, Eloy called for an ambulance as he checked for a pulse on each of the bodies, and he never found one. He would scream in absolute rage and frustration at the absolute tragic loss of life until his colleagues came to remove him from the room. Eloy Escarino had literally walked into the largest mass murder in the city of Fresno's history. At 10.30 p.m., the coroner started bringing the victims' bodies out on gurneys, Police then closed off approximately a square quarter mile around the house. The yellow tape was not escapable. While that held off those that weren't involved, the police officers, investigators, and others worked through midnight, going around and finding evidence. There were still bodies in the house at midnight. Yeah, well, because I'm sure it takes some time to process with photographing and And documentation of where they were laid out and whatnot, but... Yeah. And it was said that it would take another three hours before the last body would be removed. Right. So it's a long time. Yeah, because, I mean, I've assisted with some fire investigations on fire calls, and, you know, you got to take pictures of literally everything before you can move things. Before you can move things if you need to, or Mm -hmm. if you have to move things, we're like, hey, it was here when but we had to move it for such and such reason so i can understand why it taken so long to do all this yeah so the victims were one-year-old jiva saint vladensbry one and a half year old seldona vadra one and a half year old marshy saint christopher four-year-old ethan saint laurent seven-year-old jonathan saint charles seven-year-old aviv dominique Eight-year-old Ilsbel Carey, 17-year-old Elizabeth Briani Kina, and 25-year-old Sabrina April. The cause of death on each of their death certificates was perforation of the brain caused by a gunshot wound. The secrets and details that came out after the murders and arrest of Marcus Wesson would lead to unveiling the darkness within this man. 
his his secret um, children mm-hmm. <laughs> came out really fucking quick. Uh, DNA tests that they had they had to perform DNA tests on all of them, right? Anyways. Probably for confirmation. Yes. Yep, and it was then discovered that every single one of them was his child, right? And his child's children. Just don't ever understand what causes people to do shit like this. I don't know, especially like Joseph Fritzl, for example. Uh huh. Yeah, you've heard the name uh-huh. before. Yeah. Okay. Marcus was held in the Fresno County. Fresno County Jail on a $9 million bail. Marcus finally got a trial date in June of 2005, which was a year after his arrest. Yeah, hopefully they just took him out back and pistol him, and like, not pistol up, <laughs> they just took him out and shot him in the fucking head and be done with it. That would be nice, wouldn't it? No, yeah, of course not. It would be, but, you know, of course not. That's not how it works, is what I'm trying Never. to say. This case wasn't broadcast on the news as much as it would have and should have been because there was another pedophile in the spotlight at that time. I don't know if you'll know the name. Uh, Michael Jackson? No, never heard of him. Yeah, so that's what... No, never heard of one of Indiana's most famous residents. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow. So that's what took precedence on the TV over the story right. being, you know, oh, broadcast. because he's a fucking celebrity, but you know what? Well, a guy, like, has, like... 900 fucking kids from his kids. It's like, how the fuck does that not fit the bleeds that leads mentality of the media? But, you know, I don't know. The king of pop being a celebrity is more than likely why. Mm, probably. Like, a case that I'm doing later on this year is when one of our dark tourist spots that we got to was basically happens the same way mm-hmm. because of Charles Lindbergh crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. The famous always win. Well, Charles Lindbergh wasn't technically a celebrity per se yet at the time of his feat, but because of what he did it in its time, it was worldwide news. Right. So that really kind of got overshadowed by it because of a monumental feat done with technology for its time. Right. What? So when his court date came, the man that walked into the courtroom is not the same man that was arrested. I mean, it was. Um... When he was arrested, he was close to 300 pounds. He had the super nasty, long dreads that I had talked about. The man that walked into the courtroom... Oh, let me guess, clean-shaven, haircut, and a suit. No. Okay. Was half that weight and had cut his dreads really short. So I was half right. Eh. Seems prison changes a person or something. (laughs) But only in this case, it was physical and nothing more. Right. The trial took three months and had over 50 witnesses that took the stand. As the family took to the stand and told their tales, the jury truly learned the horrible things that happened in that house and the horror that Marcus inflicted upon his family. His defense team claimed that Marcus killed no one. No fingerprint or gunshot residue really told who the shotgun was wielded by. Right. Um... Evidence was inconclusive on that, though some of Marcus's surviving children said that he had extreme control over his clan. Marcus himself said that the oldest daughter, Sabrina, was the one that did it. He would say, in this family, I am Christ himself, the ultimate authority figure who determines life and death. So who really did it? We'll never know Sabrina's side, obviously, because she's dead. And Marcus was adamant that he didn't do it, and that his daughter was the one that killed everyone and then killed herself. Yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> the jury declined to state that Marcus was the one that fired the fatal shots, but they convicted him of murder anyways. Uh, reason being was because they found out that he persuaded his children into a suicide pact. After two days' deliberation, Marcus got charged on nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of rape and molestation against his underage daughters and nieces. He would also be convicted on all all counts. On June 27, 2005, Marcus was sentenced to 102 years on the rape and molestation charges alone. He received the death penalty and was sent to San Quentin Prison, which is home to the nation's largest death row. In March of 2021, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed an addendum on the death penalty, which would in turn spare Marcus's life. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> but would never he would never be eligible for parole. Ever. Marcus Wesson's wife, Rosemary, the original wife, mm-hmm. 
took the stand and said that she still loved Marcus and that she still considered herself to be his wife. She told the courts that Marcus had brought... She told the card... Apparently, sorry, can I get the Doctor. word courts out the this week? <laughs> I cannot. Like, like, I can get the word physician yeah. out last week. <laughs> she told the courts that Marcus bought the caskets from a secondhand store and was going to use them for a home renovation project. Oh, so bought not courts anyway. Well, I was fucking up courts too, but I said brought instead of bought the first time. So yeah, fuck both those words. <laughs> Uh, she denied knowing anything about his sexual relationships with his nieces and daughters. Prosecutors asked Rosemary why she didn't ask who the father was when her children's bellies began to look pregnant. What do you think her reply was? I don't know. No, her reply was, I thought that would be kind of rude to ask. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, in my opinion, she's as big of a piece of shit as he is. You know damn well she knew what the fuck was going on in that house and probably yep. was okay with letting it happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, she did willingly leave her kids with him. Yeah. So. As for the self-proclaimed vampire king, while well, he's still currently sitting on death row in prison, never to live in the outside world again, I'm all for death row and shit, but this fucker definitely deserved to, like, die. Yep. I also think that what is happening to him now is also pretty just. Okay. He gets to spend the rest of his life in a tiny little cell. Right. And have very little interaction and communication, and he has no no chance or opportunity to get the images and shit out of his head of what he's done. Like, he has to live with that and live right. through that for the rest of his life. And I think that's kind of poetic in a way, that he's going to die alone. He's going to die, hopefully slowly very slowly yeah. and in agony and yeah he'll have to think about that shit till he's gone right so they really should make the cells small enough to where they can't really sit down comfortably so they're always <laughs> constantly uncomfortable slanted seats yep yep just enough to where just like everything is lopsided where it's not a point to be comfortable yep and, uh, hell maybe make force them to uh, force them to sleep standing up basically oh that would suck yeah, like I said, just enough room to constantly be uncomfortable. Yeah, twenty four hours a day. Make his floors like Slant. Slo- slope like Ruoff. <laughs> I was gonna say Ruoff. I was gonna say like pine knob. You mean pine knobs? Not slant. Their floor is not slanted. Not the floor. I'm the hill about, is. I was talking meaning the hill. Oh yeah, but I'm talking about the actual oh, floor, yeah, like yeah. at Ruoff. So, but yeah, that wraps up the case of an absolute asshole with a god complex. Right, so. What you think about that? Yeah, it's kind of a fucked up story. I'm probably, I'm pretty sure I heard that long ago. But kind of a fucked up story? Okay, totally fucked up story. Like, the fans of Time Suck, like, their biggest thing to do is introduce people to Time Suck with an Albert Fish episode. Oh. Because of his fascination of eating human shit and right. piss. I found David Parker Ray more of a shock than I did Albert Fish. Right. And I found Joseph Fritzl just as shocking as David Parker Ray as Albert Fit than Albert Fish was. Oh. Well we're not talking about those bubbles. I don't know. Maybe I'm more desensitized to the shit because of my time in public service. Well Maybe. But anyhow. Yep. Yeah, like I said at the beginning part of this episode, I'm sure sort of thankful about that I didn't do it, go to down the, the left road of World War Two and I'm going down more the the shadowy right side of yeah. World War II history. Don't do of... war stuff because that shit is so boring to me. What if it was an interesting war story about an animal? I mean, that's whatever. I just don't want to hear about like... Like the time when the CIA tried to use his cat as a fucking spy? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Just like <laughs> shit on the History Channel, War Channel, I can't do that no, shit. I, I will either. fall asleep. I can't either. Then you'll but... get mad at me because you're talking and I am falling asleep no i'll just slap the shit out of the counter here with you <clears throat> yeah okay might be actually on the war side that you might still find interesting later on but this is more on the home front side of things and towards the war effort you ready so let's get yeasty get yeasty <laughs> get yeasty my baby <laughs> oh 
One thing that most people have as a staple in their kitchen is bread. Your go-to might be PB&J for a quick snack, or when it's a rainy day or snowing, you might go for the classic grilled cheese and tomato soup like we do when, you know, when the text would say it's, uh -huh. you know, it's grilled cheese day. Yeah. It's, to be fair, yeah. that is because you make the absolute best grilled cheese I've ever had in my life. I don't know how the fuck you do it, but you do it, and that is why I will never make another one. Yeah. The one time you ever made it for me in seven years. That's one time. When? The first time I ever came up to meet your parents. That's true. But I put bacon on it for you. It still counts as grilled cheese. I did. But anyhow. <laughs> Today, all we have to do is reach reach in that familiar red, yellow, and blue spotted bag for a few slices to make one of these classic sandwiches. But it be it whole grain, wheat, or white bread is your favorite. For about two months, our grandparents had to suffer even further during the Second Great War without sliced bread. Oh no, not the sliced bread. <laughs> also, kudos to you if you know what the blue, yellow, and red dot um, bread is. Here, but I'm not going to reveal what that is. That I was know. actually inspired by a, a balloon chase here in Indianapolis, in Indiana. I know what it is. I know you know what it is. I wonder if they know what it is. Oh, well, I'm sure they will. Somebody will. Maybe. They might tell us. But anyhow, <laughs> um, before 1928... Every household more than likely had a bread knife in their drawer or their cutting block and had to cut your own bread for toast and sandwiches, either, you you know, buying it from the corner bakery or the corner grocery store. Unless you were extremely skillful with a knife, you were more than likely would end up with a lopsided slice of bread. Yep. That would either be too thick or too thin to be for your toast or your sandwich. So in 1912, my man by the name of Otto Frederick Rohwetter we come up with a prototype for one of the first single loaf bread slicing machines. He was originally a jeweler by trade, and he would have a love for tinkering with gadgets and watches that he would get into a store for repairs mm -hmm. or he had laying around. This would actually lead him to create the world's first bread slicer. Did it have a name? Um, not really. It didn't have anything special for a name. Otto actually would take a survey of about 30,000 people and would find out that they all disliked the mess that slicing their own bread would actually create. He would sell all three of his jewelry stores and then get to work on a prototype for a bread slicing machine. During the development of this life-changing invention for everyone, a fire broke out in the warehouse he was working in to create his first prototype. Sources said 1916... Some said 1917, even one said 1912. Somewhere in there then. Yeah, so more than likely 16 or 17 is the actual time the fire happened. Uh, but his first prototype and all his blueprints were destroyed in this fire, but he wouldn't give up on creating this bread slicing machine. Roe Wetter's bread slicing machine would operate with using multiple serrated band blades mm -hmm. for cutting various lengths of breads of loaves. Which these blades were also adjustable to varying sizes of thickness as well. So you'd have some that were like Texas toast sized mm -hmm. and your thinner stained, ones. Thinner sandwich sizes yeah. where he probably really landed on. Yeah. Uh, this was actually also powered by a heavy duty electric motor and the, it was operated by a foot pedal. A heavy duty electric motor to cut bread. <laughs> yeah. Well, That's crazy. Well, I mean, he was building this for an industrial purpose. Well, yeah. On July 17th, 1928, bread as we know it would change. The Chillicothe Baking Company in Chillicothe, Missouri would actually sell sliced bread for the first time in history with the help of Rowetter's invention. The first sliced bread was advertised as clean-made sliced bread, the greatest forward step in the baking industry since bread was wrapped, which, as bread was originally wrapped in wax paper, unlike the plastic bags that we use today. Yeah. Now, you would think with this breakthrough in cutting-edge bread technology <laughs> yeah i was pretty proud of myself putting that in there <laughs> that's kind of funny babe. you would think this would actually cause loaves of bread to go flying off the shelves but in reality it actually didn't sell very well seriously no yeah. uh, because consumers didn't really like the sloppy appearance of pre-sliced bread and along with that sloppy appearance pre-sliced bread would actually go stale faster by just being loose in a bag mm -hmm. One of the things he did correct this was is that he came up with using a U-shaped metal pin that after it was sliced, it would keep the loaves of, bre loaves of bread together so they weren't exposed to air. That's smart, though. 
But eventually consumers didn't like this because it was an added extra step on getting bread out of the bag because you'd have to open the bag, pull the pin out, get your slices of bread, put the pin back in. Just can't make nobody happy, can you? Yeah. Damn. So. But after six months, his first bread slicing machine would actually fall apart. And in St. Louis, a baker by the name of Gustav Papendick, he would actually purchase Roe at her second bread slicer, which he improved on the design, which put them to load in from the top, loaf after loaf, to for a more higher efficiency of cutting these loaves of bread. Okay. Um, Papendick would actually come up with a new way to keep the bread fresher longer without the use of these pens. He would first attempt using a rubber band as one of the methods. But a simple cardboard tray would actually do what he needed it to do, and bread sales would actually jump up to 80% in the St. Louis area Wow! after he would package it in plastic bags at this time instead of wax paper as well. Because of the way he started packaging it, Wonder Bread would actually become a national known brand of sliced bread. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to jump ahead to January 18th, 1943 where Secretary, Secretary of Agriculture and Wartime Food Administration, Claude R. Wickard, would impose a ban on sliced bread. Banned in the bread? Yeah, it was banned in the sliced bread. Oh, no. It still isn't clear to this day on why he made this decision. It is believed it was to conserve resources on wheat, steel, and wax paper and to offset the cost of the 10 cents, which is $1.69 today, price increase on flour during World War II. Uh-huh. It is believed, though, that it would help conservation on the wax paper since pre-sliced bread required thick wax paper to keep it fresh. But in reality, these bakeries had enough to last them for, like, up to four months or longer. And there's stock of wax paper. Yeah. He would also impose that bakeries couldn't sell their unsliced bread until it was at least 12 to 24 hours old. Why? Didn't really specify why it was just so people wouldn't waste food, I guess. I mean, it didn't really specify on what this whole time frame of why a minimum set amount of hours it was okay to sell unsliced bread loaves. But but isn't letting it just sit there wasting it? Uh, yeah, true, but that's what the weird, wacky government stuff that happened <clears throat> during World War II. This was one of the things that happened. It was more likely, though, that it was also to help conserve on steel for making parts for these bread slicers so the metals could be used for more important items for the armed forces. The war the, efforts. Yeah, the helmets, parts mm -hmm. for vehicles, weaponry, you name it, for World War II. Right. Probably is why. Um, this backlash was actually almost immediate. A housewife by the name of Sue Forrester from Connecticut wrote a letter to the New York Times, and it said... I should let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. My husband and four children are all in a rush before, during, and after breakfast without ready sliced bread. I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each, that's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least twenty slices for two sandwiches apiece. Afterward, I must make my own toast. That's twenty-two slices of bread cut in a hurry. She pissed. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, something we don't think about of today, people are now, like, you know, we're having to deal with it, having to do stuff that their grandparents had to do, for right. the most part. They got a taste of convenience, and then they had to go back, and mm -hmm. they were like, fuck this shit. Yeah, which is a real strange thing is, is you can sell a loaf of uncut bread now and call it artisan bread and charge an extra $15 on top of it. Absolutely. <laughs> but... Odd thing is, this is one thing that did come up quite a bit that I couldn't find out how they considered this a loophole. There wasn't any real clear information on why it was. Um, restaurants, hotels, and railroads were given a 60-day grace period to prepare for this ban, but bakeries would be warned that they would be hit by steep fines if they were caught slicing bread. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it's something that came up, but loophole, I guess, I don't know. It would have to be that maybe in the loophole, like, hotels... Restaurants were selling sliced bread while bakeries weren't able to, so ah. they were making extra profits at this time. Gotcha. Uh, less than a week later, on January 24th of 1943, <laughs> I almost fucked that up because I put mayo instead of mayor. <laughs> <laughs> the, ma the mayo. Mayo Farella LaGuardia. <laughs> 
That's pretty great. <clears throat> so anyway, guys, start over down there. I notice my typo here. <laughs> <laughs> Less than a week later, on January 24th, 1943, Mayor Ferrello LaGuardia of New York City made a public announcement that bakeries that already own their bread slicers could carry on using them because everyone is like, what is this going to do? Right. We already have the machines. We have all the stuff to package it. Well, how is this going to save on materials that we already have? Right. I mean, in the beginning, people were asked for donating and things because they've seen pictures of Lionel trains basically being donated into scrap piles for the war effort. So that's why mm -hmm. pre-war Lionel trains have a higher value because there's less of them. Yeah. It's still, that makes me think of... The guy that mm -hmm. I would take care of that had tons of pre-war and war era right. trains in his right. basement. And I wish you could have seen that. Oh, I know. I mean, the few pictures that you showed me, that was... I would have liked this when I've seen yeah. that. Especially the paper one that was sold during these times. Because yeah. I've never seen one of those. I would like to yeah. actually see one. But before we get off track here, some more. So let's get back in the Did shoot. you just make another pun? Maybe. The fuck... <laughs> two for two in mayor of new york basically saying okay whatever do what you want we're not enforcing this shit yeah one man by the name of emil fink emil fink that was a member of the new york city bakers advisory committee would actually had put a push on this ban and would later be found and he would later find himself in court a year later and fined for slicing bread during the ban seriously mm -hmm. because that he was pushing for it, but he was going to have black market sliced bread for the most part so he could turn a profit. Black market <laughs> sliced bread. Uh, I know. That's that's a weird oh term. Oh, my goodness. A weird term to hear. You'd think to hear. Two terms you didn't ever thought you'd hear. Like when you hear black life. market, what do you think? Organs. Fucking ho organs. <laughs> human organs. <laughs> organs. Or organs. <laughs> Yeah. Not human not organs, white, actual people, not weapons, bread. you know, right. things, shit. shit like that. Yeah, not, not sliced, bread. sliced bread. Well, maybe there wasn't really a. <laughs> I'm sure there was a black market for lots of things during World War II, but you know, sliced bread probably was one of them at this point. That's insane to me. Yeah, it's weird that that you think about it because how often we go through bread anyway. But most of the time, we just eat like. A half few the pieces, and, throw it away. and then the rest of and it. And we don't want to pay the covered. extra two dollars for the half loaf that we would actually use the whole thing. <laughs> Logic. <laughs> also cheaper. True. <laughs> I don't know. I would feel better spending the extra two dollars and we eat all of it, but then throwing, spending, buying the cheaper one and throwing it half away. Why? That's my weird ass logic. But anyhow. Yeah. You, uh, yeah. But his fine would actually come out, but Emil Fink's fine would actually come out to be $1,000 in 1943. And of course, you know what I fucking did with this. It comes out to be $16,916.18 today with the help of the inflation calculator. Jesus. Yeah. For selling sliced bread. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, I mean, it was, they did say that, you know, any bakery caught doing this or deli caught doing this would face deep fines but did they not also say we're not enforcing this do what the fuck you want well the city of new york maybe not but the, gov the government probably found out about it uh okay okay makes sense but an article in time magazine on february 1st 1943 in the middle of this ban wouldn't publish an article that would say to u.s housewives it was almost as bad as gas rationing and a whale of a lot more trouble this article would also describe women that would fumble with their grandmother's serrated knives with housewives not acquainted with slicing their own bread would come grief, cussing, and lopsided slices, which even a toaster would refuse, often with a mad dash to the corner bakery for rolls. But most homemakers saw grimly on, this war was getting pretty awful. Because of sliced bread. Because this whole thing, fuck, is just... I told you it's going to sound like really fucking boring, but it's going to get really interesting. This whole thing is like... My brain's like, that's really stupid. Like, right. the shit that they're doing. But then I think, I'm like, wait a minute, this is about sliced bread. Right. Something we take for granted today. Absolutely. You know. Um, during this time, the idiom... 
the best thing since sliced bread was born. Of course it so, was. So, I mean, it was gone until something new came along. Oh, this has been the best thing since sliced bread. One of the biggest drawbacks of the sliced bread ban was that the bakeries were actually starting to lose money anywhere between 5 to 10% of their sales because of, you know, people were coming in more likely buying sliced bread than unsliced loaves at this time. Yeah. On March 8th, 1943, the government would lift its ban on the sliced bread as it wasn't really saving a whole lot during the war effort. The New York Times would print as a headline when the ban was lifted, Housewives who have risked their thumbs and temper slicing bread at home for nearly two months would find slices would find sliced loaves on the grocery store shelves tomorrow in most places. Wickard, the secretary of mm -hmm. agriculture, he would refuse to acknowledge the anger of both housewives and bakers and would simply just say the savings were less than anticipated and it turned out that there was enough wax paper to go around after all. Of course there was. Right, that's all he's said now this isn't like here in our state of indiana a couple of years ago when all the e-cig laws went into effect and then mm -hmm. the atf was like hey this seems a little bit odd we're gonna look into this and then all the shit that they found with it like yeah how this one security firm was only able to meet all the requirements that were written into the bill and all the stuff and then they dug further into it and found that hey that this brand of liquid is owned by this investment group, which owns a security firm, which owns all the casinos. Yeah. The slot machines in the fucking state minus the, the Indian ones. So, this is... I couldn't find any if there was any evidence to that being that kind of thing. But, who knows? Like I said, it's one of those World War II mysteries on the home front we probably will never have an answer to that I couldn't find. Probably not. Or I wasn't going to find behind a paywall. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, that's my... Sounds really boring, but it is kind of a weird, wacky, short period of our history of our country there. Yeah. That's a weird little story, any way you slice it. Yeah. Oh, look at you. Uh, uh, one fun fact that I did find out about this, that, you know, how this standard, when you think of a loaf of bread, how it's just square in yeah. shape. Right, yeah. That is actually called a Pullman loaf. A Pullman? A Pullman loaf. Okay, what are what's a round loaf called? Oh, the Pullman loaf is like why I'm bringing this up is actually railroad related because it was named after the pull, uh, Pullman cars, the, the Pullman cars that would actually you know be on passenger trains. Of course, <laughs> you would find a train tie in some there. It happened to some come. There? It wasn't really <laughs> tied into this. It came up in one of the things that I was reading, trying to find fun facts about bread and just to throw in there. Here's a fun fact about bread. It's delicious. If you don't eat it, that shit turns green. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the Egyptians would use moldy bread to cure illnesses. The penicillin. The penicillin. <laughs> Anyhow. That, so, was, that was that was pretty neat. It was more entertaining than it sounded like it would be. Yes. Yeah, it's what I thought when I'm typing this out. I'm like, she's going to think this is boring as fuck. I, in my head, it was boring as fuck. <laughs> I mean, the first beginning part probably about how Slice Break came around, but yeah, it's one of those things like the cemeteries. It's there. We see it all the time. We know about them, but we don't know how it got started. And that's... I mean, I should have known with you the way that you write. Mm -hmm. um, like, I should have known that you would put your little spin on it and make it entertaining in some way, yeah. even if it wasn't an entertaining subject. Right. Good job! Well, I mean, that's the thing with history. A lot of people find it boring. So you gotta put it in a way to make it interesting for people. It's me. I'm people. Oh. <laughs> Well, she's going to call herself out, but I'm just saying in general, most people don't want to learn about history because it's boring. Yeah. You know. Which well, you is, give me subjects that I I like. Right. And I will, I'll dig in and want to learn all the things. Right. Like, there's one thing that I looked at the doing because of how cold it's been re recently. I kind of wanted to do something that was summertime related, mm -hmm. but it kept pointing me back to one person. So I just like, I don't know if I really want to do this. And it was like. A random thing that popped in my head while I was at work was like, how the fuck did tent revivals get started? <laughs> you know, um, like Christian tent revivals. 
And it's like, how did those really become a thing? And it all pointed back down to one man by the name of Billy Graham that would have tent revivals in L.A. Yeah. So, I mean, the little bit that I read, that was quite interesting. Like, his tent that he had was half the size of the Barnum and Bailey's one that I mentioned two weeks ago. Half the size? Half the size of the Barnum yeah. and Bailey tent. Just for him to spread the word of God. Which, it's quite, I mean... Spread the word of something. Well... You know, we don't have a problem with religions here. Just the wha- we're just the wackadoodles like Sarah Cumberland, Marcus, yes. Dirtball, Wesson. Yeah. I don't know. I you was gonna know? say something okay. that shit got that died of loneliness. <laughs> died of loneliness? Is it killing me? Yeah. At night. <laughs> yes, Brittany, it is. All right. So <laughs> I'm thinking it might be time to close up the important today because we're just rambling on with I fucking agree. <laughs> so until next time. Remember to creep it real. Okay, bye. Adios. Please check out our website at macabemporiumpodcast.com. Join our Facebook group by searching Macabre Emporium. Like and subscribe on YouTube at Macabre Emporium Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Macabre Emporium. And if you have any stories of the paranormal, your local true crime, or weird history that you would want us to look into and possibly do an episode on, email us at macabemporiumpod at gmail.com. Remember to follow, rate, like, review, and share whenever and wherever you can and help us grow our little baby podcast. But even through this, Marcus was building a strange bond. (laughs) I totally wrote a strange bong. (laughs) 